0: Amen. Good morning. morning. Praise God that we are a people ransomed for his glory. We just sang the price of forgiveness was the sacrifice of Jesus, and that through him we are made new. And that's going to be the subject of our preaching today. So before we go any further, though, um, let's pray together and ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would illuminate the word that he inspired, that he would open our hearts to receive, and that he would change us. Let's pray. God, I need your help this morning. Um, You have written this word, you've written this letter to us this morning. And God, only with your help can these things be discerned. Only with your help can um, we understand these great truths. That through Christ we are forgiven, that we are made children, and that, um, that you change our lives to fit this gospel. But God, this morning as we, as we read your word, would you, would you give me the words to speak? Would you work through me, Holy Spirit? Help me to preach as a dying man to dying men, to understand that it is your word that contains power. Holy Spirit, um, we thank you this morning, we testify to Jesus this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, it's my great pleasure to preach this morning. Uh, I'm one of the past. My name's Andy Claude. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And you know, it's not every church that gives all of its pastors opportunities to share the, the pulpit. And I'm really grateful for this. And um, being able to share the the uh, with such gifted men as Russ and Jared, uh, among them I'm the least of the brothers. But uh, though they may preach the gospel better, they cannot preach a better gospel. So, um, so we're going to be this morning in Ephesians, uh, starting in chapter four, which is on in your pew Bible. In the Bible's page six seventy five. And by the way, um, if you don't have a Bible and a good modern trustworthy translation. Take this Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, we would love to see it put in your hands and for, for God to use that. So, um, many of you know we've been in the book of uh, Ephesus since our our planting. We looked briefly at Revelation and then at Acts to explain what God was doing in Ephesus. Um, but we are now uh, in starting in chapter 5. And in the first uh, three... Um, first three book uh, chapters, uh, uh, Paul was laying out the great testimony, the great witness of the gospel. And so really quickly, for those of you um, who have not been with us or or would like some refreshing on what Ephesians is or who it's written to, um, Paul wrote this book. He was a church planter in the early church. He uh, was an apostle. And he went to preach the gospel in Ephesus, which was a uh, pagan city. And it was known for its sexual corruption. Um, And Paul began preaching the gospel, and many were converted, in fact, so much so that the entire economy of Ephesus was rocked because they made a lot of their money by manufacturing idols and books of witchcraft and such. And they began, as they began, turning to the one true God that began burning their pagan works and began burning these books and so much so that it caused a great ruckus in the city and people were roused into shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians um, for, for quite a long time. But, um, but God would have the day in that city. Paul was released. The gospel flourished and he is now writing to Ephesus from prison to the, to the church in Ephesus to remind them of the gospel that saved them from their idolatry and to show them how the gospel affects their lives. Because the gospel, as we know, is not simply a set of training wheels um, that we give to people who want to become Christians and then move past. The gospel is, um, is the bike. It, it's, the, it's the entire point. We never move past the gospel. We move deeper into the gospel. And so we're going to move deeper into the gospel today. So, uh, in in chapters one through three, Paul has laid out the amazing truths of the gospel. Let's take a brief look at some of the truth statements that he said. God, before the foundation of the world, has chosen for Himself a people, though they were dead in sin, He made them alive together with Christ. Though from every nation, tribe, and language, He has made them one in Christ. We read that for Jew and Gentile, for no matter what our cultural backgrounds. God has made us one people in himself, one church. And he has given us the privilege of declaring the gospel, uh, what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, so that even the heavenly realm would stand amazed at the work of Jesus in his people. And just as God has called us together into one body, he has gifted us with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to help us stand firm in truth, and to grow up into Christ, who is the head of the church. So that is uh, one through three. That's kind of the main themes that run through there. Now, in, verse, and in chapter uh, four, uh, we, as we looked at uh, two weeks ago, Paul began to take a different turn. Uh, now, if you would turn with me to uh, Ephesians 4, um, 17, we're going to look at this together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Uh, Really quickly, Gentiles uh, are not necessarily those who are not born Jewish, but those who are not believers now. As he said, he's made us one. We're now all Israel who believe in Christ. And so when he's saying Gentiles here, he's not saying Gentiles in general. He's saying people that do not believe in Christ now. So, now thus I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires." And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul begins, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the great truths that he has given us, he says, now, in the light of these truths, you must walk differently than you used to. Your life looks different because God has justified you and He is working out holiness in you. You remember what Jared said, the difference between a Christian is not... Simply that Christians are forgiven, it's that Christians look different, that there's holiness, that there's a different trajectory in our lives. We, we see that we still struggle with sin, we repent of sin, and we see increased victory over sin in our lives. And so this is what we're going to be examining further in depth today, but that's what he begins in chapter 4 to talk about. And he, he exhorts us to do things that the rest talked about last week, to put away falsehood. To not sin in our anger, to no longer steal, but to, to share with those who are in need. To not allow corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but to build each other up. To not grieve the Spirit of God. To put away anger, clamor, bitterness, and wrath. And to be kind to one another, forgiving one another. And the motivation for all this, Ephesians 4.32, is that God in Christ forgave you. This is the motivation. And so this is the springboard for our text today. Notice I, I had to reach back into uh, verse 32 instead of just starting in chapter 5 because everything in chapter 5 hinges on verse 32. We want to look at that. Uh, so will we start with me in Ephesians 4:32, um, And let's examine this text together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, therefore, the imitators of God as beloved children. So why I chose 432? If there's a therefore or a wherefore, find out what it's there for. Uh, you know, every seminarian chuckled. Um, it's what we, um, all this hinges on the therefore. Because of Christ's sacrifice, uh, we are uh, beloved ch- children. Do you recognize that? As beloved, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we are beloved children and we are forgiven. These are the two truths that is going to drive and motivate the text today. So, uh, and walk in love, uh, starting in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So notice that As. As God in Christ forgave you, as Christ loved us. That as means in the same way. In the same way that Christ forgave you, forgive others. Was it hard for Christ to forgive you? Did it require something? Yeah. But we're called to do that in the same way. Did Christ walk in love, giving himself up for us? Yeah. We're called to love one another in that same way. So, as God in Christ forgave you means in the same way. And God's forgiveness was based in Jesus' sacrifice. Notice this. We read, God in Christ forgave you, and this is how. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So God simply couldn't wink and nod at sin. He couldn't simply say, ah, your sin's not a big deal. Uh, I'm just going to forgive you of it. God's character, God's nature is that of holiness who um, sinners are undone in his presence. In fact, the scriptures say he's a consuming fire um, of holiness. And so, were we to stand before God apart from the work of Jesus, we would be consumed. Um, but thank God for the work of Jesus who gave himself up, it says he gave himself up as a fragrant offering. So, his offering pleased God and satisfied his wrath as a sacrifice. So, God's forgiveness, God in Christ forgave you, is based on Jesus' sacrifice. It, it was a costly act. But really quickly, as we, as we go forward with this, as we, as we meditate on this, there are going to be two tools that are going to be very helpful for us to understand this passage, and actually, really, almost any passage of Scripture. And so, uh, together, we're going to learn um, two words, all right? Um, we, most people see the Bible as a set of commands or rules. Do this, don't do this. You know, A lot of people tend to pick on the Old Testament for this. Hey, you, know, you say you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't sin. Well, you know, don't eat shellfish because that's a sin or things like that. So, um, Back in Leviticus. And so we see those are instru- a set of instructions to specific people. But what you find, the Bible contains commandments. We just read some of them. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. These commands are called imperatives. Like, um, have you guys ever heard imperative using a sentence? It is imperative that you get to the chopper! You know, right? So, um, it's, it, there's, a, there's an urgency to it, but it's imperative. It's a command. So, imperatives are commands. They're instructions that are given to us in the scriptures. But there are also different um, truth statements that are in the Bible. It's not simply a list of commands, uh, it's also a list of truth statements. This is true. So these are called indicatives, all right? So imperatives are commands, indicatives, truth statements. And so we read some of them. God in Christ forgave you. That is a truth statement. God in Christ forgave you. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. That is an indicative. That's a truth statement. He definitely loved us. They are darkened in their understanding. Not, not so pleasant, but that is a truth statement. Uh, God made us alive together with him. That is a truth statement. So we see, we've already through Ephesians looked at, at both commands and um, indicatives and imperatives. Uh, so one more time. Indicatives are truth statements. Imperatives are commands. All right. So, uh, we are prone only to look for the do's and the don'ts in Scripture, right? We're, as If we look at this text today without understanding that there are truth statements, that there are indicatives, we are simply going to say, wow, that's a lot of stuff that I can't do. That is a list of things that I deserve hell for. Um, but notice Paul weaves throughout this passage both indicatives and imperatives. Um, let's take a look at this. These indicatives, these truth statements, are both the power and motivation to obey the command. So if we, if we knock out these indicatives, then we have no hope. But the indicatives are our hope. So therefore, let's look at, again at verse 32 of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So what is the indicative in that, in that verse? God in Christ forgave you. The imperative, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Forgive one another. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's a truth statement. That's an indicative. So walk in love as he did. That is the imperative. So these tools will help us to be able to receive the text this morning as it was meant to be received. Not as a list of do's and don'ts, but as glorious truth that propels us to worshipfully obey our Father. Apart from these truth statements, these indicatives, we could not carry out these commands. But praise God that God in Christ forgave us and that Jesus gave himself up for us as a sacrifice and a fragrant offering to God. So let's continue then. Verse 3, using these tools, we're going to look at the text. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So if you were with us from, from, uh, from the first week, Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus. That is the audience. He's writing to those who have been born again. Now, we often hear saints as, uh, man, those are super holy people. In fact... Those are people that were voted by a council, that they were, man, these people were holy. In that post-mortem, after their death, that miracles were done in their names, and so therefore they've been confirmed as a saint. That's not true. Um, Paul is writing to uh, the saints in Ephesus, which means all those who, as, Christ, as he said, have been made alive together with him. So he's telling us the true statements that regard saints. Saints are those who have been made alive together with Christ, those who were once dead in sin but now are alive. And so in light of this, often in our culture we hear two different words. It's really great for songwriting because they, there's alliteration. Saints and sinners. And we often juxtapose those to each other. We may say, you know, sinners can't be saints and saints can't be sinners. But that's not exactly the truth that the Bible presents. Because Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus telling them to repent of their sin. So um, Martin Luther comes to our aid here. He had a um, he had a phrase uh, called "Samuel Eustace et peccator," which means at the same time, simultaneously, Samuel Eustace, justified et peccator, a sinner. At the same time, justified and a sinner. That's what a saint is: a sinner who, by the sacrifice of Jesus, has been made clean, who still struggles with sin but His holiness is being worked out in them. And in fact, uh, in, uh, on October 31st, which is Reformation Day, we celebrate when Martin Luther walked to the door of the church in Wittenberg and nailed to the door 95 theses. The first of these theses, all of life is repentance. And so this is the understanding of a saint. A saint is one whose life is marked by repentance of sin, not indulgence in it. And so we're going to be looking at this. So... Um, we are righteous wretches in Christ. Um, and so a saint struggles with sin, but their life is marked by repentance and increasing holiness. So, uh, before we go uh, further, let's look at these words sexual immorality and impurity. Um, are, these are two different Greek words. Uh, the first one is porneia. You guys that sound familiar, you hear the word pornography. Uh, that's where we get that, that term for. When these two words are put together, they form kind of a junk drawer term for any type of sexual sin uh, which we as Christians understand that any type of sexual activity outside of marriage uh, which is the covenant union between one man and one woman any type of uh, sexual indulgence outside of that is sin and so um, the type of sins that this is referring to is anything that is outside of that loving covenant bond which includes um, fornication, which is two unmarried people having sex, or um, adultery, which is a, a married person uh, having sex, someone that is not their spouse, or um, watching pornography or incest or homosexuality. These are all different ways of sinning sexually that are contained within these two terms. And so, um, really quickly, the Christian uh, ethic on sexuality as i said anything that is outside of the loving marriage of a man and a woman is considered sexual sin and this is why um, god created we Christians are not anti-sex we're uh, we are not anti-sex it's viewed as a gift from god and there's a context for it and god created it for the context of marriage so just like um, oil for example we like oil we like gasoline we like making sure that our engines run. So oil is, is a good thing. But you think of the BP oil spill uh, a while back. This, uh, the pipe that broke, the good thing was contained in the good context of that pipe. But when the earth shifted and the pipe broke, this good thing flowed everywhere. And everything that it touched, it brought destruction and death too. So that's kind of like sex. God created it for the purpose of marriage, for the joyful union of man and wife. But any, uh, anything outside of that context brings pain, brings shame, brings hurt. Um, so this is, this is the Christian view on sex. It's, it's something to be enjoyed. It's something to be praise God for. We're going to talk about this a little bit later when we talk about crude joking. Um, but we're not anti-sex. We're anti-pornea, anti-anything outside of the sexual uh, union of man and wife. So um, Ephesus was known for sexual immorality. Um, their Their goddess uh, that they were say, saying, great as Artemis, the Ephesians uh, was uh, the image of her was this grotesque multi-breasted fertility goddess that they would that they would worship through different means of sexual immorality. They had temple prostitutes and they would have uh, orgies outside of the, of the temple. And these were all, this was the culture in which this church lived. So you think America's bad. Uh, the, the gospel flourishes often where it is darkest. And so there's hope. There's always hope. God can turn, um, God can call people to himself in the darkest of cultures. And that's what we see in Ephesus. So this gives you a little bit of context. Why would he be writing them about sexual immorality? Because this is the culture in which they lived. And the Christian life is meant to be lived contrary to the way that the rest of the world lives. And so you have a little bit of the idea of what life was like for the Ephesian church. It was everywhere. Section of the right, it was everywhere. It was the stream in which they lived. Very similar to us. We have such access to um, these things in our homes. Um, and, and the, the age for, for children seeing pornography is lower and lower and lower. So, um, so just keep that in mind as, as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And then we have the word covetousness. So back to verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And so covetousness is the polar opposite of the self sacrificial love that Jesus displayed. What do we just read in verse 2? Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's self sacrifice. That is laying his life down. And in Philippians 2, it says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So this is the life of Jesus, self-sacrifice. He poured himself out for us. And this is how our love ought to be. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, walk in love. This is the descriptor of what love is. And so covetousness is the exact opposite of love. Covetousness is self-indulgence. It's always longing after more, never being satisfied And Covetousness is a descriptor for sexual immorality and impurity. And so, um, using others for personal pleasure is covetousness, and that's what sexual immorality and impurity are rooted in. Uh, Let's go to verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so again, we have this, um, these different terms. Filthiness, think, smut, things that you wouldn't want your children to see. Um, don't let that be prominent in your life. Foolish talk, you think about this, is actually the words we get moron and words from. It's two words put together. Morologia. Um, foolish words. So don't let your words be weightless or empty. Let your, um, let your words have depth and weight because you are people who have been called in Christ. Therefore, your words carry weight because you have something eternally weighty with you. Crude joking, which would be joking about sexual immorality. And um, John Stott uh, is really helpful on this. We're going to read a a quote by him on one of the reasons why we as Christians take um, crude joking seriously. And it's not because Christians are anti-fun. In fact, it's very, it's very um, easy to be funny without being crude. I mean, just look at people like Tim Hawkins and other people that can get you laughing. But uh, this is John Stott on why um, crude joking is a big deal. But the reason why Christians should dislike and avoid vulgarity is not because we have a warped view of sex We're, and are either ashamed or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it as being in its right place God's good gift which we do not want to see cheapened. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than joking. To joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the best way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. And so giving thanks is the way, as he said here, is the way to preserve their status as gifts. We have a high and holy view of sex, and we view it as a gift from God. So therefore... It shouldn't be made light of because it's bound to cheapen it. So giving thanks is the opposite of self-indulgence. We just said self-sacrifice is the opposite of covetousness. Giving thanks is the opposite also. It is being satisfied with God's good gifts. So that's why it says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Um, So let's continue on to verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone... Who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's turning a little bit heavier here. Um, notice the word covetous is equated to idolatry. Here it says, everyone who, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater. Um, as we said before, it's self-indulgence, but it's looking to other things to fulfill our greatest need that we find only in Christ. So the root of covetousness is idolatry. It's thinking that something other than God can fill our greatest need. If I could just have that, or if I could just be with that person, then I will feel satisfied. But this is what the Bible calls idolatry. It is what he's called earlier in Jeremiah, carving out for ourselves wells which hold no water, and putting all our hope in that. So... Uh, covetousness is idolatry. We've also been told in chapter 1, verse 11, that as children of God, we have obtained in Christ an inheritance, and that the Holy Spirit was given as the guarantee of that inheritance. But notice here it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let's keep reading one more verse. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, because of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, the wrath of God is coming, comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so here we have a grave warning. That, that, that word comes upon, that is an eternal progression. That means that when it gets here, it's still coming. And it will never stop coming. There's eternity. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience and never stops coming. And so we have in this a warning of eternal punishment. And then we see the, this term, sons of disobedience. It was used once before in the book, in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. So if you wouldn't mind, flip back uh, to Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 together. we're going to look at the use of this term, sons of disobedience. Okay. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see it? It's used, it's used there. as it's used in our text. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And so the sons of disobedience, children of wrath, Gentiles, all these terms describe the same person. Those who, the text just told us, the wrath of God is coming upon. And so we're told in this passage two things. Because God in Christ forgave them, that saints' lives are marked by worshipful repentance of immorality, impurity, and covetousness. We're told in this passage also that the sons of disobedience lives are marked by indulgence of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, and that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so based on this passage, um, I want you to consider these, these things with me. Um, is my life marked by indulgence of sin or repentance of it? And often you're not the best person to, um, to point this out in yourself. This is why God has created us as people who need community. Uh, oftentimes, people can see faults in you that you cannot see in yourself. And in fact, this is why we need each other as Christians to point out these areas. And so I would ask the way that your, your peers see you, your spouse or your church family or your kids, do they when they think of you, do they think of someone who is self-indulgent, a user of people or sexually immoral? Friends, if this is true, then you need to consider what this passage has to say today, that you might not be a saint, and that rather you might be a, children, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. Paul Washer, um, who's, a, who's an evangelist, once said in, in his most shocking uh, youth message, it's, it's uh, something to, to watch on YouTube for sure, but he gives this illustration. He said, If I, if I came in tonight, you know, um, 30 minutes late, and all the people were like, Where were you? Where, you know, didn't you value the fact that we came? He says, Yes, yes, I'm so sorry. I was, on the, I was on the interstate, and I, you know, I got a flat tire. So I got out to change my tire, and then I was down there working. The lug nut fell off and went out into the highway. So I went to grab it, and as I looked up the last minute, I saw a logging truck, and bam, it ran me right over. But it's okay. I'm, I'm here now, I'm, I'm ready to speak. And so, what would you think if, if I were to say that to you today? I'm sorry, a logging truck just ran me over, but here I am. Um, say, either you're a liar or you're crazy. Because that, that, that can happen. You cannot come into uh, contact with an object the size of a logging truck and not be changed <laughs> in some way or another. And so often, though, what, what, what Christians or Christians um, professing Christians tend to say is, I've come into contact with the Holy God, and here I am. But their life is not changed. There's not a pattern of repentance. There's not spiritual fruit that, that can be seen. And so we have to wonder, is the Spirit of God at work in them, bringing conviction of sin, bringing repentance? As we said, the difference between a Christian is not simply forgiveness, It is also holiness is being worked out. So we have to take this seriously. As you look at your life, as I as I once did, and you see a pattern of indulgence of sin, you don't you don't see a difference between who you were and who you say you are now. And these these this next section is is for you. And take heart, there's good good news in this passage. The fear that you feel in hearing these words is a gift from God. Jesus laid down his life for us, enduring the wrath of God in our place. And the solution for the child of God who is struggling with sin and the child of wrath who is indulging in sin are the same. Repent and believe. This is Jesus' words. If you could put a bumper sticker on Jesus' ministry, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, repent and believe. And so this is, the, this is the actions of both the saint and the son of disobedience. As we said before, the saint is one who lives a life of constant, daily repentance. And so we're called to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? Uh, The gospel is that our sins are so evil that they called for our eternal punishment. We just said the wrath of God comes. An eternal progression of sin. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In fact, the scriptures say that we have been storing up God's wrath for ourselves. The good news is that God loved us, and he sent his son, Jesus, who lived a sinless life. He had no debt to pay of his own. He was perfect before God. He lived as a man. He was tempted in every single way that we are tempted as mankind, Hebrews says, and yet was without sin. He never once gave in to his sin. So here we have juxtaposed Adam and Christ. Adam, who gave in to sin in a garden of abundance. He had everything that he would ever need, and then you see Christ who was out in the wilderness, who had nothing that he needed and yet would not be moved to sin. This is the perfect Adam that we now see. And his obedience was perfect. But then he laid down his life and was brutally murdered in our place. He was nailed to a Roman cross. And not only uh, was he flogged and beaten and spit upon and mocked physically, but the wrath of God that was coming fell on Him in our place. The wrath of God that we've been storing up for ourselves fell on Jesus. And He died. But then He rose from the grave with victory over sin and death. And He sends His Holy Spirit now to convict the sons of disobedience, to show them their need for the gospel and that their hope is found in Christ alone. So, saint, if you hear this, and as we were describing, sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness, and you recognize that struggle in yourself, continue to repent of your sins. All of life is repentance. Believe the promises that are extended to you in this passage. We just read, God in Christ forgave you. Christ loves you, and he gave himself up for you. These promises are yours as a saint. But if today you recognize that you are a son of disobedience, I say the same thing. Repent of your sins and look to Christ alone for your salvation. No amount of good works can wipe away the wrongs that you have already done. No turning over a good leaf. No amount of tearful remorse. The work of Christ alone will save you. But Jesus died in your place, and he rose again. Forgiveness is yours in Christ. His blood can cleanse you from unrighteousness. Not only has he bore the wrath of God and been your propitiation, satisfied the wrath of God, but he is our expiation. He washes us from sin. And as we live in him, we are repenting of sin daily because of this work. He has declared us righteous, and he is making us actually righteous. So confess him as Lord believe this. He loved you first. And He is drawing you now to come to Him. So with this being said, let's now turn to the last section of this passage today. Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Again, if there's a therefore, Find out what it's there for. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And what it means, do not become partners with them. Do not become complicit in their damnation. Crude joking, again, we come to this. Crude joking, joking which has sexual impurity as its subject matter is wrong because men are damned for sexual immorality. Men are punished by God for impurity. And men are punished by God for covetousness. Matthew Henry writes, dare we make light of that which brings down the wrath of God? Do we make light of sin that that damns people to hell? Could you by your participation or your joking or your lightheartedness regarding sin be lulling others into a sense of security? Because you communicate that sin is not a big deal. Um, That's something for us all to ask of ourselves. And so therefore, Crude joking is a big deal. Saint, we are called to greater things. Now listen to this indicative, this glorious truth. For, uh, verse 8. For, is because at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice this, you were darkness. Not, not simply you were in darkness, you were darkness. Your life, your soul was marked was, was darkness itself. Jesus, through his work, has made you light in the Lord. Now, in light of that indicative, now these imperatives, walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So you are light in the Lord. So become who you are. Your new life, like sun shining on a field, produces fruit. Fruit that is good and right and true. Fruit of the Spirit. As we read before, the Spirit of God lives in us and is the guarantee of our inheritance. Instead of self-indulgence, you worshipfully obey your Father. Jesus earned your approval before the Father. Therefore, your good works for Him. They're not trying to earn His approval. They're not not trying to satisfy His wrath. They're not trying to turn God to you instead of from against you. God is for you. You are His child. We said uh, in verse 2, you are a beloved child. So therefore... You work. Therefore, your works are worshiped to God. They're thankfulness. We said, instead, let there be thankfulness. That's what good works are. It's, it's good works are being produced in you as thankfulness to God, not trying to buy him. He is for you through Christ. The works of darkness that produce no fruit, uh, that produce no fruit, that doesn't please God. So take no part in them. Because you have been made light in the Lord, your concern, he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, your concern is no longer for self. Your concern is for for God. What what makes Him happy? What pleases Him? What is good and right and true? Rejoice in those things. Because you are light in the Lord. Instead, by a life marked by repentance, you will indirectly expose the sins of others and show them their need for Christ. Christ. So when we say the word expose here, do we say, go to your neighbor next door and stand outside of their house with picket signs? This person is a sinner. <laughs> do we say, go in front of uh, every adult uh, bookstore and stand there and condemn their sin? No. This, we do condemn sin, but it's indirectly. And Peter is very helpful here. Let's look at 1 Peter 4, and he's going to show us how. We, as Christians, expose the sins of others. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, which is on page 703 of your Pew Bible. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 6. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Sound familiar? We read in, in chapter 4, they no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Here another apostle saying the exact same thing. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. All these things we just talked about. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And so you see, our lives indirectly, by their holiness, by their increasing holiness, indirectly expose the life of others when they go forward in their idolatry and their drunkenness and their different ways of sexual immorality, they are surprised when you do not join them and they malign you. And this is the way that the Christian life is. It's counter-cultural. So again, our call is not simply to stand outside of every uh, establishment that that, that promotes sin. We would be exhausted. (laughs) It's everywhere. Every home that is not a Christian home. but our lives indirectly expose the lives of others. They are surprised and we do not join them in their idolatry because we found something greater. We've found the treasure that is Jesus Christ. And it's not a finding by our own merit. We didn't go looking for him, he came looking for us. He chose us and he made us alive together with Christ. None of those things we did. And so therefore, by grace we have been made Christians. By grace we have been made light. And so, therefore, we have found something greater than all those things. Therefore, our lives look different. And finally, in the last verse, Paul offers an invitation. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, saint, awake. Awake. Love the way that Christ loved, self-sacrificially. Repent of the sin that cheapens God's good gifts and allows others to feel comfortable in their sin. Believe that God in Christ forgave you and made you alive together with him. Child of wrath, sin of disobedience, awake. Christ is shining on you. He's awakening you to your need of Him repent of the sin which calls for His wrath and trust in Jesus' sacrifice that washes away sin rise to no longer walk as a son of disobedience but as a beloved child let's pray God we love you you did nothing we did nothing that would merit you coming for us. We didn't deserve the grace that you extended to us in Christ. But as we found out, it is all of grace. Jesus, you laid your life down for us. When we read that truth statement, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, our hearts ought to beat with such violent passion Jesus loves us, and he gave himself up for us. We are beloved children in Christ. Forgiveness has come to us through the sacrifice of Christ, we read, as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Through the blood of Christ, we are made children. God, we thank you for this. We don't know how to thank you for this. But I think song is appropriate. We're about to read, we're about to sing together. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that is true of us today. God, for those who are far from you today, those who recognize that they are sons of disobedience, they are children of wrath, God, I pray that you would draw them near. That you would show them the fear they feel as a gift, and that during this time that they would seek you and find you. We thank you in Jesus' name. So for this.